Amen. Well, uh, yeah, it's okay to clap in church. That's all right. We, that's okay. That's allowed. Um, a bunch of Baptists in here. I'm just kidding. I'm a Baptist too. All right, this is uh, week four of our series in Stories and Stained Glass. And what that means is we've been looking at this beautiful building and we've been walking through some of the imagery that's uh, in these uh, stained glass windows. The majority of them were put in in, the, uh, in 1875 when this building was uh, built. Uh, we looked at uh, the first one, uh, Paul, one of our elders, talked about that one. Just scripture is our, our highest authority. Uh, that is the, the biggest one. It's the highest one. Uh, scripture is ultimate. Uh, that if somebody comes up with some theology uh, that doesn't line up with Scripture, uh, nope, let's get rid of it. Uh, we looked at Ruth uh, a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at uh, the children coming to Jesus and how lovable Christ is and how beautiful he is. This week uh, we're going to be focusing on this dove, uh, this first one over here. Uh, and so uh, Paul mentioned this a couple, couple weeks ago when we first started the series, but I just want to, kind of the history of, of stained glass, it was just kind of fascinating to me, um, a history guy. This is uh, uh, St. Chapelle, it's in France, right? It's just really like right across the street from uh, Notre Dame, Notre Dame, uh, RIP. And uh, just kidding, it'll get, they'll fix it. Uh, but it, again, it's, it's French, right? So it's probably like Saint-Chapin, uh, something like that. Um, and so, obviously built a long time, 600 years before this, this sanctuary was built. And from the outside, of course, it's a beautiful building. Uh, Angela and I, when we went to Europe, we were on our way to go see uh, Notre Dame, and we just kind of stumbled across this. And I remember, if I remember right, we, we accidentally got in like right away. We kind of went through some government building and got like our bags checked and somehow cut the line. I don't know what happened, but it worked out great. Um, and we, we kind of <laughs> snuck into this building um, but when you walk, when you walk inside, uh, this is what it looks like. It's just wall-to-wall stained glass. I mean, it's just all you see is this beautiful stained glass. And if you if you zoom in on it, which is again hard to see, but all of those circles are pictures of the story of the Bible. In the 1200s, a lot of people were illiterate, and so they would look at these images that just walk. And you could just sit there, and you could start the beginning and look at creation and go through. And what was really cool is those ones that are kind of split, what they would do is take an Old Testament analogy or typology and show you the New Testament equivalent that is in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And so while these images that we have and these stained glasses that we have in this sanctuary aren't as quite robust or grand, they're still beautiful. And so we wanted to look at the history behind these. We've, we've gone into that, but today I want to just focus in on that dove. And there are two doves. And so this is going to be a, a, a little mini-series if you will, on the Holy Spirit of looking at this dove. Paul next, next week is going to look at uh, the other aspect of the Holy Spirit. And so this week, uh, and it's depicted as a dove because of Luke in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus is baptized, when he comes out of the water, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it says, and then the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove or as a dove. doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is a dove, but a lot of times within Christian iconographs, you see the Holy Spirit depicted as a dove, and that is why. So this week, part one of this uh, is going to be the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Paul next week is going to talk about the practical side of what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And so just going to be walking through some various passages in Acts. And so just a simple outline, if you will, uh, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend the majority of our time here but this is not just for head knowledge, right? If you know me, uh, if, you've, if you've sat under a systematic class, if you've been there, I don't like just to regurgitate information and then just go, oh, cool, cool. 
all right, I, I, I now have a deeper understanding on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? How, how does it apply? How is Jesus still the hero of even looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? We talk, we, we try to balance it of head, heart, and hands, not just head, and that there's no Im- implication for my heart and my hands. We want to have an equal balance as best we can. Then we're going to look at the, at the doctrine seen, seen in Scripture, and then the uh, third part is then going to be the doctrine applied just briefly at the end. How does this actually matter? I've done extensive uh, study and research in this. I do multiple lectures, I guess, if you can call it that, on this. And so, um, I don't know, you can't even read this, but I've got a lot of resources for it. R.C. Sproul wrote a very good book on this, the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Thomas Aquinas, way back in the 1200s, uh, maybe he went to Saint-Chapin, I don't know. Um, but so there's a lot, a lot of books, a lot of information on the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so I'm, gonna, I'm a little bit, a little more note heavy today than I normally am. I, I, I wanted to make sure I say things the right way. I'm going to stick to my notes. Um, and so, so here we go. Uh, why study the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think because there's a lot of misunderstanding around the Spirit. And uh, not to say that I have all the answers. I do not. Uh, but I think Scripture gives us a lot of those answers, <laughs> gives us a lot of information. Uh, I grew up, as a lot of you know my story, in a fundamental Baptist church, and I'm not, not knocking on them. I, I'm thankful that I was introduced to, to Jesus at a young age, but we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, if we did, we almost had to like whisper it, like it was like, like a bad thing. Um, and, and if the spirit was ever preached on, it was actually like, here's what the spirit doesn't do, right? That was more what the sermon was. That's not what we're going to do today. I want to look at the doctrine of the spirit. I want to look at what he does do, uh, what we find in scripture and what his, his major role, if we can just narrow it down, which we'll talk about is opening our eyes to see who God is and how he is revealed in scripture. He's not the father, the son, the spirit, not just a, a topic to read about, to comprehend, to understand. I, I liken it to, and I'm going to be using uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 a lot in this, ser- in this uh, sermon. So if you don't know Guardians of the Galaxy, that's okay. Uh, I'll fill you in. But one of the main actors, his name is Chris Pratt. And I've watched a lot of Chris Pratt movies. I uh, watched Parks and Rec, right, with Andy McGuire. I love Chris Pratt as an actor. I think he's hilarious. I think he's a, I think he's a cool guy. I can get to know his characters. I don't know Chris Pratt. I've never sat down and had coffee with Chris Pratt. Uh, I don't know the guy, but you kind of feel like you do. And that's what we can get when we just read scripture as a textbook. We don't actually get to see who Jesus, who the Father, who the Spirit really is. And the role of the Spirit is to open our eyes and to sit down and get a cup of coffee with God and with Jesus and the Spirit, looking at scriptures and say, okay, now I don't just know who you are. I know you. I can see you, and you know me. There's an analogy that a uh, long time, I'm not going to do the history of where the analogy came from, but there's four blind men who walk up to an elephant. One of them walks into the leg and says, oh, it's a tree. There's a trunk right here, a tree trunk. The other one walks to the side and says, no, it's not a, it's not a tree, it's a wall. The other one grabs the, the trunk and says, no, this is clearly a snake. And the other one grabs its tusk and says, no, this is some kind of, some kind of spear. And so the analogy is that the Holy Spirit, in a way, is a sight, someone who has sight who says, no, 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 you guys, you're, you're getting part of the picture. Let me give you the whole story. It's not a, not a trunk, but I can understand why you'd think that. It's actually an elephant. It's this grand thing. But more than that, I think what the Holy Spirit does is it doesn't just tell the, the blind person, this is an elephant. 
what the Holy Spirit, when we really get to understand and our, our eyes and our hearts are illuminated by the Spirit, reading the scripture, it doesn't just explain this is a tusk. It explains this is what whiteness of a tusk is to a blind person. We cannot understand the God of the scriptures without the Spirit, opening and illuminating, opening and illuminating our eyes. The first mention of the Spirit comes right off the bat. Genesis chapter one, one and two, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. It was a wasteland. It was uninhabitable and darkness or chaos was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God, the Hebrew word there is ruach, is breath. The breath of God was hovering over the waters and we're gonna use, see this word spirit used all throughout the Old Testament. I don't have the time to do a biblical theology of walking through all the time the spirit is seen in the Old Testament, but we can see that this is the spirit of God. This is his breath, this is his will that is hovering over the waters, over the chaos, and he makes then the world inhabitable for human beings. So in the doctrine part, if I can, I wanna break it down into these three aspects. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And then one, one word descriptor of all three persons of the Trinity. So the first aspect is who is the Holy Spirit? A classical definition, if we were to give it, maybe if you know, maybe on the way in, I could have polled you all and taken little notes or you know, done, a, done a questionnaire on Facebook and said, give me a definition of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have included this, simply. It's the third person of the Trinity. Well, what's that mean? <laughs> what does the third person of the Trinity mean? Does it mean like third in rank, right? Like, like the Holy Spirit's like number three. Like if I had to pick a batting order, it's God, Son, Spirit. Is that what, is that what this means? Is it order that we find in scripture? Well, we just saw in Genesis chapter one, even if we don't say, I don't know if we can say that's the spirit, actually the spirit of God. There's plenty of places in the Old Testament that talk about the spirit of God before we get to Christ. Is it created order? Like it was God and then he creates Jesus and then Jesus creates this. Or simply, which I'm gonna argue is that it's third in the order of being. The Trinity, is part of classical Orthodox Christianity. In other words, it's essential to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity to call yourself a Christian, period. Uh, I use this analogy a lot at Hope, and you've probably heard it before if you've been coming to Lower Town for a while, this idea of a raft. Uh, David just got back from the Boundary Waters a few times. He probably didn't ride around on a raft, is my guess, but uh, I normally use this analogy. You've got this raft, it kind of breaks down because they just blew this up, but imagine these are separable uh, pillars of this raft that you could break apart. One of these main pillars is the Trinity. That if you say, I don't believe in the Trinity, you're not on my raft, right? We can't break this, this raft apart, but there are certain doctrines in cargo that are on the raft, that if somebody takes that and throws it into the water, Sometimes, hey man, we're gonna dis this is gonna be a big thing to disagree on. We talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. Ah man, we're gonna, we might disagree on how important that piece of doctrine is. Now, we can talk about end times. When is Jesus gonna come back? Well, David, it was, you know, how hot was it when you were there, right? 90 degrees, right? You're wearing flip-flops and sandals, right? Uh, and, and if somebody throws your extra socks into the water, yeah, no big deal. I don't really care about that. That's not important, but I wanna hold tightly to the raft. And the Trinity is part of the raft. And what we see explicitly taught in scripture, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, it says God is one. That's the oneness 
of God is clearly taught in Scripture, and yet Scripture also clearly makes crucial distinctions about this God in Trinity. C.S. Lewis has a, a phrase that I think is very helpful when thinking about the Holy Spirit, and that is three who's make up one what. And that's what we talk about their, their personhood. But before we can dive right into the third person of the Trinity, I think it's helpful to know about the first and the second. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the first, that is God the Father, that is Creator, as Father. I think we, we, we have a good concept of that, of the Father. But I want to look at the second person of the Trinity. Why is Jesus second? Because that will help us understand third. Because what we see is that Jesus is second, but yet the second is eternal. The Nicene Creed, uh, written in 325, says this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. All right, so the, the church fathers are trying to make a point here. Jesus wasn't created. The creed says that he was eternally begotten. Begotten simply means it comes into being before it wasn't. My children, Henry, Jack, Emma, right? They were born. They started on a certain day, and they were born before that they weren't. So we can look at Guardians of the Galaxy, the Star-Lord there, Chris Pratt, but his dad, Ego, which is a great name, don't name your kids that. Ego, but for his character, he's a god. And ego, as a god, wants to further uh, his influence in the universe, and so he begets, he begots Star-Lord, or what's his character's name? Peter. Peter Quill, thank you. Right, but our church fathers say, yeah, we can't do that. This isn't a birth, this isn't that. In accordance with scripture, our highest authority, we can't say that Jesus was created or born in this sense. We can't talk like that. He needs to be eternal, not eternally created. That doesn't work either. He was begotten, not made. So how do we make sense of this? Uh, uh, Aquinas, uh, C.S. Lewis, R.C. Sproul, um, I've studied them extensively. Uh, if I could paraphrase a lot of their teachings, it's this, that God, the Father, the first member of the Trinity, is a conscious being. He thinks. He's aware. He's a personal being, just like you. But how much of your personality is contained in your mind? R.C. Sproul used to do this thing. Uh, ben, where do you live? Ben, you live in St. Paul? Are you here right now? Are you alive? Oh, you're alive, okay, good. So you're here, but you're, are you alive? If you're here, but I thought you live in St. Paul, right? It's just kind of this idea of like, where, where is my essence, right? You live, obviously, wherever you are. You live inside this body, yet are you that body? It's part of you, but it's not you. I've looked, I've, I remember reading this in some journal a long time ago, and I have looked so hard to find proof of what I'm about to say. It could all be baloney, or it could be true. So I'm just going to say it, and you can take it with a grain of salt. 
but I read it somewhere on the internet, so it had to be true. There was this brain surgeon who was trying to argue about the ghost in the machine or was trying to say, uh, we're just mechanical beings. We're just bodies, right? We're just, we're self-aware, but we're just physical. And he would do brain surgery. He would touch a certain part of their body as, as the person was awake or a certain part of their brain and would make their arm move. And so there were multiple times the person who was awake but not moving their arm would say, whoa, that's weird. I didn't do that. And he had to flip his understanding like, whoa, wait a second. You know you didn't do that. It's, so it can't just be mechanical. There's something deeper inside. There is a sense that I live in my consciousness, my self-awareness, and it goes about in my body. So God is pure spirit. He has no body. He is a conscious spirit. But for how long? How long has he been a conscious spirit? If you remember again in Guardians of the Galaxy, Ego is walking through his timeline with his son, and he says, I was just this brain, or I was this cell, I was this thing floating around in the universe eons past. And I slowly started to build and multiply before, and I could think, and I became self-aware, I became conscious. But Ego had a beginning. The God that is depicted in Scripture has no beginning. So unlike Ego... God in his being is eternally conscious, eternally thinking. Philosophy calls this actus purus, pure actuality or pure thought. He was thought thinking about himself. Hang with me. When he thinks of something, he knows it totally, not approximately, totally, perfectly, completely. God is eternally, perfectly, completely aware of himself, of who he is. And so therefore, his concept of himself is exhaustive. There is nothing about himself that he doesn't know. So the question is, what is the difference between God himself and God's perfect idea of himself? If I think about me and I think about the perfect idea of me, I want to be a little slimmer. Uh, I want to be able to grow an actual beard. It's not patchy. Uh, I want to be able to, right, a lot of things. Dunk again. <laughs> Remember those days? Some of you do. There's things about me that as I view myself or I think about myself, what I would want to be better or different, when God's thoughts about himself go out and come back to himself, there's no difference whatsoever. Thomas Aquinas says this in uh, 1225. God's self-awareness goes out, sorry. God's self-awareness goes out into all eternity and bends back to the mind of God himself. We call that the perfect image of God. Contains within itself all that God is eternally, the eternal logos or word or the idea of God that takes on human nature in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, God's perfect image of himself is generated in his own mind. Eternally, this happens instantaneously, wherever it happened in eternity past, his thoughts go out, come back, and he sees who he is. That's the second person of the Trinity. The perfect image of himself. We have an eternally conscious being who has a perfect eternal knowledge of himself. So how does the Father then relate to his own image? He thinks eternally, he knows eternally, but he also wills eternally. A will is a choice. 
It's the mind expressing what pleases it. God knows himself perfectly. And the highest thing that God wills is the highest good because his will is absolutely perfect. Therefore, he loves and wants what is perfect. In other words, the supreme desire for God is God, which makes sense. Now, that might sound like ego. That might sound like, man, this, this God who just wants to influence all of the universe as much as humanly possible, so I'm going to create someone that is kind of like me, but not fully me. I'm going to have this child, but it's not me, so I, so I can influence the world, so I can take over the universe, whereas God says, no, this is a perfect union that I have, because God can't get any greater than himself, and so it makes perfect sense that he would want the greatest thing available, which is himself. So as his thoughts go out into eternity and bend back to himself, so does his will. God the Father loves and desires and wills God the Son, and in turn, God the Son, the perfect image, loves the Father and chooses the Father and wills the Father perfectly and eternally. This will is what we call the Holy Spirit. Within one essence of God, there are three distinct persons who eternally interrelate. Lewis is, right, the three who's, making up one what, making up the one true God, eternal fellowship within the being of God himself. So we have third in the person of the Trinity, third in order of being, not created. I know that was deep, I know that was heavy, <laughs> hope that was helpful. But was this spirit is the spirit, is this will then fully gone? In Acts chapter five, one through four, uh, Dr. Luke says this, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of, of property. Oh, good job going potty, buddy. He's potty training right now. Good job, bud. Proud of you. Uh, they sold a piece of property uh, with his wife full of full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings. There it is, but to God. But the apostle Peter, clearly aware of what just happened, the Holy Spirit enabling Peter to, to see through this lie, Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. So we can say, what does he do? Well, again, we can look at this quote from Sproul. It says, the father exists in himself and generates the concept of the son, and they are in mutual relationship, which proceeds from the Holy Spirit. So with one word, the scriptures, we could say the Father is the creator, the Son's the redeemer, the Spirit is the sanctifier, and yet they are one. They are unified, that we cannot separate creation from the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is nothing that exists without the Word. We can see in Genesis chapter one, verse two, that the Spirit of God was present in creation. And yet we attribute this aspect of creation to the Father, of breathing that spirit, of breathing that life 
into human beings. We see the Son as the Redeemer, and yet as we look at the Trinity in time past, at eons past, eternity past, that they are in agreement that we are going to send the perfect image of myself to take on flesh to die for my image bearers. And they're in complete agreement of that. And it is the Holy Spirit who wakes people from the dead, brings them from death to new life. I want to look at the doctrine scene now as we kind of transition into the second aspect of this sermon. Before I do that, I'm mean, looking at the, at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a gospel, but it is narrative. And it is a very helpful book to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and the New Testament early church. But we have to ask ourselves when we read things, no matter what genre of scripture we're reading, Genesis chapter, Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the, the kings and all the history books and the judges and we get to the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job and Jonah, and we get to the, the, the prophets and old and, and major and minor prophets and all these different aspects. Is it describing something that happened or is it prescribing something to me that I ought to be doing? Now, there are things that Jesus says and teaches that prescribe. There are things especially that the church fathers, the early church fathers, as far as the apostles, prescribe in their epistles, their letters to the church. Acts is not an epistle. Acts is descriptive. It's describing events that happened. And so we can't take things from the, the, the book of Acts and say, this was true of then, so it must be true of me as well. If that were true, man, we could, we could blow that up real quick as far as things that happened uh, in, the, in the early church that just simply should not be operating now. But we're not going to get into that right now. So I'm going to look at this as being descriptive in the book of Acts. And so the first chunk here, I want to look at commands through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to mainly read this uh, and make a couple comments as I get to certain things. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the first books, so this is Luke uh, who's a doctor, physician. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is kind of part two. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he commands, Jesus commands through the Holy Spirit to teach the apostles, to enlighten them, to open their eyes to the understanding there is a different story and understanding of the Old Testament that's applied now under the new covenant. And the apostles are open to that through the teaching of the, uh, the, uh, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And he presented himself alive, this is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, which again isn't a physical thing. It's a spiritual kingdom. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John was baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Water, this, where there's a huge swimming pool back here of a baptism, right? You get dunked under the water. You get plunged under the water to, to represent the death and burial of Jesus Christ and to be raised to walk in newness of life. John baptized with water under an old covenant uh, within uh, Israel understanding Jewish tradition. But now something's going to be different. As you're baptized in the water, there's something that's going to be different. There's going to be the spirit now that when you believe in me, you put your faith in me, my spirit now is going to and dwell in you. Not many days from now, so the Spirit's not here yet. So when they had come together, 
They asked him, Lord, will you? They asked three questions. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel physically? He said to them, it's not for you to know when, the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will, you, not me, you disciples, apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up into a cloud and a cloud took him out of the sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood behind them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heavens will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so then we have this idea of Pentecost. Some Pentecost simply means 50. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after this event, Peter then stands up with the 11, with the other apostles, raised his voice and addresses the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose, right? So what happens? They, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostle. They start to, start to speak in tongues. They start to speak a language that they previously didn't know and other people can understand what they're saying. And nobody says, what's happening? What's going on? Oh, they must be drunk. And Peter, I love it. He says, no, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I mean, what do you think we are, right? It's only nine. Come, come back at 9 p.m., a different story. But this is nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. So now he's going back to the old covenant as Joel prophesies about a change. Something's going to happen. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit, my breath on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs and in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls the name. Remember, these apostles, they're addressing the Jews. They're addressing people right there in Jerusalem. And so just a few chapters later, we're introduced, or sorry, just later on in that chapter, sorry, I skipped ahead. We get this idea of the early church. And I, I love it when I have, I'm a church planner, and I get together with, with guys who are wanting to plant a church and want to start a church. And they go, man, we got to get to Acts chapter two. We got we to start an Acts chapter two kind of church. Okay, great. Good for you. The problem is, it was only for Jews. If we want to get back to Acts chapter two, these are only for Israelites. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayer. We do these things. Everyone was filled with awe and many of the wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers together had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But at this point, this is still Israel, but something's about to change. And so we're introduced to the greatest mystery in the Bible. And here it is in Acts chapter 11, skipping forward. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Galileans or the Gentiles also had received the word of God. The Gentiles also received the word of God. That was a big no, no, you can't do that. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the, the Jews, criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and you ate with them? You can't do that. And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. It's repeated in Acts chapter 10. It's verbatim, word for word in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, in meditation, I saw a vision, and I saw something like a large sheet being brought down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was, and I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Those animals were forbidden to be eaten under the old covenant. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Three times. God the Father says, eat. And he's like, whoa, I can't do that. It's against the rules. And he's like, no, 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 eat. It's happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again, right? Then three men who had been with me, or had been sent uh, from Caesarea, stopped at the house where I was staying. These are Gentiles now, and the spirit, Gentiles just mean any other ethnicity other than Jewish. The spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. So now the spirit's talking to Peter, saying, go with these people. And these six brothers also went with me. So there must be six other people. So there's nine Gentiles and Peter. And we entered into the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. Now, it's interesting that if we go back to the beginning, it says the apostle believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God that they heard who God was, they heard who Jesus was and the forgiveness of his sins, of, of their sins with, through his blood, and they heard it, but now something happens where the Spirit says, now they're gonna be saved. As he began to speak, the Holy Spirit descended on them as he, had as he had descended on us at the beginning, and then I remembered what the Lord had said. So here he's thinking back what Jesus said, John baptized the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the Gentiles that are the dogs, if he gave the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They had a, a misunderstanding and reading of the Old Testament that it was for one ethne, it was for one group. That's never been the case. It's always been for all ethne, but somehow it turned into this tribalism, nationalism, if you will, that it's just about me, it's just about us. And God says, no, it's never meant to be that way. And so Peter in his sermons preaching, no, remember in the Old Testament, Joel even talks about all nations. Abraham talks about all nations. God talks about all nations being blessed through Abraham. The greatest mystery in the scripture is that everyone and anyone, no matter of, of, of their ethnicity, can be saved. It's not just the God's chosen people of Israel. Even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So simply, the doctrine applied. As we see the Spirit, this per third, third person of the Trinity, 
as he moves in the life of the early church, as he moves and says, no, no, this isn't just about you anymore. This is about all people. But I'm going to wake up their hearts and their souls and their minds to see me not just as a doctrine, just as some book, as some scripture, some words on a page, but as alive and breathing This way of thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity should move us to doxology, just a fancy word for praise. I want you to just think about it. You close your eyes if you want. It helps me to think. Imagine now that it is God before time saying the best image of myself, Jesus incarnate, or Jesus, my perfect image, that image is going to take on flesh. He's going to become a human being my image bearers. They're not me, but they're like me. They bear my image. All humans bear my image. And Jesus, my perfect image, who takes on flesh, is going to be brutally murdered by those image bearers according to our choosing in the Holy Spirit. The perfect image of me, my son, will take on himself the sins of all those who rejected us. And then I will be able to love them again fully. Because again, God only desires that which is good and pure like himself. And he needs us to be sinless, covered by the blood of Christ, so that we can be accepted. Not by anything I can do. I can't merit it. I can't do it. Only by the finished work of Christ. So that he can love us fully as he loves his own self perfectly. So in gospel application, do we know who the Spirit is? There was a lot, it was, a lot. It was heady, it's a little, maybe a little deeper than we normally like to do at Hope. A lot, of, a lot of reading, a lot of words. But do we know who the Holy Spirit is? Do we see the Spirit as God? Or do we just see the Spirit as some genie in a bottle that I pray to that when I want this thing, God, I just need you to heal this person. I need you to do this thing. I really need your spirit to be present here. We cannot manipulate God. We see the spirit as God, equal with God the Father, God the Son. We're going to have communion like we do every week uh, at Lower Town. Communion is simply a time to remember, a chance to remember what it is that Christ did, what it is that Jesus did, the second person of the Trinity, that as he decided in union with the Trinity to take on flesh, to be a human, to be killed for us, to shed his blood that's represented in the juice that we partake of, that his body is broken, that's represented in the bread, and the wafer that we eat, that we remember. Uh, there are elements in the back, if you didn't get them when you came in, I'd love to invite you to take those if you'd like. Uh, all it asks is you're a follower of Jesus. If you can look to Jesus and say, oh yeah, no, he, he died for my sins and I believe that. I don't fully understand everything, but I believe that. I'd love for you to partake of these elements as we remember what it is that Christ did and as we pray for the Spirit to enable us to fully understand and comprehend or maybe get a further understanding and grasp of what it is that Christ did for us on our behalf. He did what we couldn't do and we can have union with him through the power and the sanctification of his Spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a few songs together as we partake of these elements together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. 
Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your will that has enabled us to see you for who you are, that has shown us, opened our eyes to see you, not just as doctrine or a textbook or a history book or some ancient writing, but as a live, breathing word, logos, that you, Father, with your Son and your Spirit, were present in the beginning and you are present now in our lives. And so, God, I pray now as we take these elements that we would remember deeply what it is that your Son did for us, Remember what it is that you did as a father to lose your son, to have your son that you knew from eternity past, the perfect image of yourself, take on flesh and take on pain and suffering for us, your image bears. So God, I pray that we remember and we give you honor and glory that it's due your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.